Today's story begins with inhospitable Samaritans who in 30 CE had a fairly tenuous relationship with their Judean neighbors and wanted to make a couple of comments about that because historically, for hundreds of years, there would have been this tension between uh, the people of uh, Jerusalem and Judea and the Samaritans. It would have been political indifference. It would have been mixed with religious indifference. Um, You might think of the Protestants versus Catholics uh, tenacious relationship in the 70s and 80s in Northern Ireland, or even for us, the, the whole colonial story of Canada, where that shaped this division and indifference and um, bad relations between us and our indigenous neighbors. And so in that context, in 30 CE, maybe we're not so surprised that they're suspicious, the Samaritans, they're suspicious of James and John and Jesus and what they might be up to in their village. They've heard rumors of this traveling rabbi, this would-be prophet, and his fishermen friends, and they're not necessarily eager to have this rabble-rousing roadshow enter their quiet rural life. Imagine James shouting in the middle of the town square, Do you not know who Jesus is? He rebukes demons out of demon-possessed prisoners. The Samaritans may have replied, yeah, but I heard he made a herd of pigs run into a lake. And those pig farmers are destined for bankruptcy. James responds, he's a healer. He healed my, my, my friend's mother-in-law. Again, the Samaritans might have replied, yeah, but there was rioting in that town afterwards, was there not? Some trying to throw him off a cliff because he wants to change religious rites and the traditions that have stood for years and years. James' face turns red. Jesus, in the name of Elijah, I'll command fire to consume these people. Jesus turns to James and says, No, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. James bristles, but he relents. And the twelve disciples move along to the next town. And they're met by another crowd of would-be followers. One shouts anonymously, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replies, foxes have dens and birds in the skies have nests, but the human one has no place to lay his head. Jesus turns to another in the crowd and offers an invitation, follow me. A man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of God's kingdom. Another voice from the crowd pipes up, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those in my house. Jesus says to him, No one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for God's kingdom. Wow, Jesus. As they say in showbiz land, you're a tough act to follow. 
It's only the second Sunday in the season of Lent, and we've still got 30 days in this journey, and Jesus, the, the path of discipleship feels so steep. I don't know if we can keep up. And that's exactly what Jesus might be trying to say with this story. You and I are not the center of the story. It doesn't depend on our shoulders or our try-harder tenacity to get this Lenten journey done. This is a story about the resolute determination of Jesus. It's Jesus' determination. It's Jesus' urgency. But Jesus does have some lessons for us along the way. Not to be Jesus, but to follow. And so what might followership look like for us in these days of our Lenten journey? Imagining ourselves on this road trip with Jesus. From scene one, we read of these sons of thunder, James and John were sometimes called, getting ready to unleash this holy ghost smackdown. But Jesus rebukes and reminds those disciples And that rebuke and reminder spills out to us that the zealous punishment of those who reject Jesus is not ours to avenge. Remember the Beatitudes. Bless, don't curse. Remember Mary's song. God will scatter the hearts of the proud. Or remember the words of Jesus. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Time after time, Jesus' words and um, exhortations are these words of mercy, these words of love, these words of nonviolence and compassion. So in this season of Lent, when we are tempted to lambaste and crush, might we hear the words of Jesus, rebuking us, staying saying, put away your weapons and pursue the way of mercy and generosity. I was reading Henry Nouwen's In the Name of Jesus book again this past week. He urges the Christian to take the narrow way. It's this nonviolent, unspectacular way. He writes, I give you the image of the Christian with outstretched hands who chooses a life of downward mobility. It's the image of the praying Christian, the vulnerable Christian, the trusting Christian. May that image fill our hearts with hope, courage, and confidence. The second scene, too, is full of correction, and maybe we might call it refinement from the words of Jesus. Jesus reminding would-be followers and us that discipleship is not a matter of self-promotion or waving our CV in front of Jesus saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. It's a tough lesson that Luke writes of in these three interactions. People who might look and act a lot like you and me. Perhaps we feel like the effervescent enthusiast. Jesus, I've totally got this. Anywhere you can go, I can go better. Jesus rebukes the enthusiast. He simply says, the way that I rough it is not the way that you will be able to handle. 
Even animals are better off. I live the way of a wandering, homeless stranger. No shelter, no home, no family. Or the second interaction is, is, is this, what I'm calling the conditional convert. Yes, Jesus, I'm on board, but I beg you for a waiting period. There's some really important things I need to tend to. Episodes 7 and 8 of that Netflix series. Family obligations, you know. Jesus rebukes the conditional convert. Let the people who live dead-end lives tend to dead-end tasks. I'm kind of rephrasing that a bit because it is a pretty harsh word. Let the dead bury their dead. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't go to your parents' funeral. But Jesus is saying that there's this way of death and these tasks that lead to death that dead-end people do. But I am inviting you to deep, lasting life. I am inviting you to those places where dead things are resurrected in my name because of my presence. So let the dead bury their dead. But I am inviting you to deep, lasting life. Or perhaps you're more reasoned in your response. What I'm calling the reasonable resistor. This third wannabe follower has done more of his Old Testament homework. He knows that the prophet Elijah gave a temporary stay to his colleague Elisha before he left home. So this um, wannabe follower says, I'm coming, Jesus, but I suspect that you're a good fellow like the prophet Elijah. In fact, weren't you just on a mountain with him a few weeks ago getting some cues? Let me say farewell to my parents first, kind of like Alicia, and then I'll be right with you. Jesus, without a wink, rebukes the resistor. No procrastination. No backwards looks. If so, you're not fit for the kingdom. Wow. Vetoing the zealous punishment of the other, shredding the CVs of the enthusiast, or the conditional convert, or the reasonable resistor. What's the good news of Jesus' persistent bubble popping, so to speak? Just poking, bursting all the bubbles. What, what's the good news of this? I'm going to hearken back to what I said earlier. The good news is that we only need one Jesus. This is a story about the resolute determination of Jesus. And the good news is that we are invited then to follow. Not because of our spectacular abilities, but because Jesus leads the way. And for the joy set before him, we read later in the scriptures, Jesus endured the cross scorns its shame, and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So in these early days of Lent, we will follow. And we will recognize that the leadings on Jesus, the followings on us. And we'll try to do what those disciples did. We'll stumble, we'll catch our breath when we must, 
will dare to risk what it means to follow Jesus. And we'll not follow because we know where the road takes us, but we'll follow because we trust in this Savior who leads the way. We won't follow because we know the picture. We won't follow because we can count every cost. Because the cost might be great to us in terms of our relationships, in terms of our resources, our purses, and our pocketbooks. But we'll trust this Jesus who goes before us and believe that Jesus' living and loving presence will lead the way. And as we follow, may our hearts and our imaginations be filled anew with hope, courage, and confidence. You have a prayer. You have a couple of prayers in your bulletin today. And I'll invite you to read along with me one of those prayers.